This is our annual session on loving-kindness practice. I'm experimenting during this uh, session with uh, reducing the schedule so people get a little more sleep to see if that will help people become able to concentrate better. Uh, We have a fairly set schedule in our sessions from the time when we were training at Rochester Zen Center. Hogan trained there, and then I trained at ZCLA, and later he did too. And we've maintained that schedule uh, and actually intensified that schedule since we've been training with Harada Roshi. Recently we've done a retreat with a Vajrayana teacher, Dan Brown, and he has a lighter schedule for his retreats and does um, intensive and more sh- and shorter periods of, of practice. So we're going to try that out and uh, see how it goes. So we're getting up an hour later than we usually do, which means you can get a, if you go to bed right away, if you need that much sleep, you can get a good night's sleep. And we won't have any uh, periods that are over two and a half hours long. I want to I experiment with if that last, you know, when you have a three or three and a half hour period of sitting, for some people that last half hour is pretty uh, intense in terms of physical pain. And to see if we can back off of that a little bit and whether that will help people's state of mind or not, I don't know. Pain definitely can help you focus. Um, I've had that experience myself. And go beyond. it can help you go beyond pain, totally beyond pain, where pain does not exist. So in our, in our practice, we try uh, different methods. Uh, we also have different ages of people, so different styles of practice are appropriate for different types of people, different... Um, psychological makeup, different body types, different ages. We try to make it intense enough so that energetic young people will be challenged uh, because our experiences when we were young and with young people today, they want a challenge. They, They want to be stretched. They want to see beyond their ideas of their current limitations. I think we all do, uh, in reference to the concentration practice that we were doing, the three-pointed, three-pointed support concentration practice on breath, and then there's another one we'll move to, the seven-point concentration on breath. One of our oldest practitioners here actually got it very excited about it, saying, oh, I, I feel like I can really learn to concentrate in my 70th decade. So we're never too old for practice, but we might, some of us might need a little more rest in order to practice well. I mentioned the first night that metapractice is not traditionally taught in Zen monasteries or uh, Zen centers. There might be others in centers now doing 
meta practice retreats, but I don't know of any besides ours. And we've been doing one session a year devoted to meta practice for over 10 years. And there are two reasons, although this is not a traditional part of Zen practice. First, meta practice, compassion practice, loving kindness practice, practice with the four immeasurables is an important antidote to a cool flavor that Zen seems to have. In Zen, there's an emphasis on breakthrough, on satori, on insight, on the wisdom aspect. And this can sometimes leave people disconnected from the world in an unhelpful way. So uh, we've had people go home from Sashin in the old days, and their family said, this practice is not benefiting you. You are, you come home, and we feel like we can't relate to you. You're off in some, some spacey state. It's possible to learn to enter a peaceful state of samadhi and find relief from the stresses, the sorrows of our individual lives, But as the practice widens, our frame of reference has to also widen from a narrow focus on I, me, and mine to an awareness of the universality of suffering, of human suffering. And even then, samadhi can offer a blessed kind of relief from a world of seemingly endless conflict and distress. But it's very easy to make a comfortable nest within samadhi. And very easy for the peace and ease of our own state of heart and mind that practice offers us to morph into a kind of casual indifference about everyone else's suffering. So you sometimes hear phrases uh, coming, coming out of Zen teachers' mouths and Zen practitioners' mind, mouths. Well, that's just their practice. So I've heard it even in reference to teacher misconduct, that uh, some people are reluctant to say, oh, uh, there are victims. There are victims as a result of teacher misconduct. They, they say things, well, that's their practice. Say things like, well, that's their practice. That's what they have to work with in their life. That's their karma. Or that's samsara. So that's when we need to bring in compassion practice and metta practice. It's a delicate balance, this middle way. The Buddha was very clear that we have to let go of our grief for the world before we can be fully enlightened. We have to let go of our clinging to the world and our grief for the world. But letting go of the grief doesn't mean letting go of compassion or discarding kindness. We have to face human suffering head on. This is the descent off the cold Mountain. Many images in Zen of people sitting on a, a mountain uh, at midnight in the crystalline stillness of a winter night. 
which is a description of that state of mind of absolute samadhi. But then always there's a descent back into the marketplace. Or in the ten ox herding pictures, one of the pictures is has nothing in it. it. has an empty circle, an empty enso in it. So yes, we have to empty out. But then in the ox herding pictures, there's a ride back into human life. We have to face human suffering head on, our own and that of the world. Yes, that is the nature of samsara, the endless fighting in the Middle East, the greed of most corporations, which ignores the human consequences of making a short-term profit, the inability of the wealthiest nation in the world to provide enough food or the basics of education or good health care for its citizens. We were just traveling in Sri Lanka and the average income in Sri Lanka is $2,010 a year. And yet everyone has health care. And everyone has education. And university education is free if you passed your tests with a high enough grade. So the literacy rate among young adults is 99%. And the life expectancy is 75 years, which is comparable to the U.S. Our average income is about $40,000, a year. And we have many children in Klaskenai who don't have enough to eat on the weekends. So we have to have a program to send food home with them on the weekends. And every year the school has to cut teachers out. And as we know, we don't have health care for everyone. So we have to face human suffering even in this wealthiest of nations. We have to face it and work with it. In this session, we're working first from what's called the conventional aspect of loving kindness and compassion. The conventional understanding and experiences of loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness and compassion are related intimately related. First, there are two of the four optimal states of mind, the optimal ways for a human being to rest their mind in these states. They're called divine states, um, partly because the Buddha described them first in the middle-length discourses when someone asked about how to be a Brahmin. So the Brahmins are the highest caste, the priestly caste, and how to have the mind state of a, of a Brahmin. Or you could say the mind state of, of a god. And the Buddha said this is the way to do it and talked about the four divine abidings. They feel divine to us because when we're in them, 
we feel lifted above our usual states of reactivity to a more sublime or heavenly state. All of us have had this experience when somehow we were free from all of our anxiety and worry and clinging and aversion. And everything just seems so easy. And it seems so easy for us to be kind to everyone and generous and not to be knocked around by the things that come toward us unexpectedly, even things that would normally distress us. Because these states are within us. They're not something we take on by doing practice. They're something that we uncover. They seem heavenly because it's such a relief when we're in them. Such a relief from our usual state of heart-mind. But they're actually not heavenly. They're normal. Normal to an awakened being. When we're in the four divine abidings, you see things that happen as a kindly God would another reason to call them divine, or you could say a benevolent parent would. So one analogy that's used for the four divine abidings is the way a parent feels about their child. Now one of the difficulties with doing metta practice in this culture is that many people have not-so-happy experiences with their parents. And so anytime we use a parental analogy like the Metta Sutra, like a mother would treat her only child or care for her only child, it causes some distortion in the field. (laughs) If people haven't had such a good experience with their parents. So we have to realize that this comes out of a culture where uh, parenting, at least by our, even by our modern research standards, was better, is better than in the West. So the ideal parent has metta, feels kindness, loving kindness, towards a child before it's born. So this is an unknown being. This is a theoretical being, known only by movement, and these days by ultrasound as a black and white picture. So there's this completely unknown being that the parents feel loving kindness towards. A kind of curiosity, uh, anticipation about encountering this being further in life. So that's what loving-kindness is. It's a basically kind outlook, benevolent outlook. All of us have experienced that from time to time, where we meet somebody we don't know, maybe we're shopping and somebody goes by us and we have an interaction or with the checkout clerk or in the post office or just walking by people on the street. Maybe after Sashin, I think it's a fairly common experience that 
there's just a, a field, an aura of, of goodwill around us. Goodwill towards all beings. Goodwill to all mankind, as the angels sang. And then karuna, compassion, is what a parent feels after the child is born and the child suffers. So if the child is sick, in pain, in pain because they get an immunization, hungry, distressed, then naturally the parent's heart opens in compassion. They feel the child's pain, and if they could, they would take it away. Every parent says that. Every good parent says that. When their child is in pain, they would gladly take the pain on themselves if their child could be spared that that pain. But they also know, part of compassion is knowing that pain and distress is part of human life. So out of loving kindness, a parent takes the child for immunizations, knowing that in the future it will save the child a lot of distress. So the parent holds the child with a benevolent attitude while they're getting their immunization and comforts them afterwards. Wipes their tears away. Then mudita is sympathetic joy. So this is a parent's joy in the child's accomplishments when the children learn to crawl, learn to walk, learn to say their first few words, learn to slide down the slide by themselves. You know, there's so many steps along the way when you're a parent that make you rejoice. So this is sympathetic joy. Happiness in another one's happiness. And children are so happy when they pass these milestones. It's amazing to watch. They work so hard, so diligently at learning to walk. And then they're so pleased with themselves when they finally get up on those two legs and stagger around. And everyone's happy for them. Everyone claps. And everyone urges them on, do it again, do it again. So the joy is shared amongst the onlookers and the child. And then upeka is equanimity. And this is something that parents have to have, particularly when their children leave home. That their children go out into the world and we're no longer even observing what's going on, thank goodness. <laughs> but definitely not controlling what's going on. And so we just have to have equanimity about what is happening in their lives. So these four qualities, a basic loving-kindness benevolent, friendly attitude towards everyone and everything, metta, karuna, compassion, when people are suffering or beings are suffering, our heart is moved, our desire is to relieve their suffering if we can, 
mudita, sympathetic joy, which is not so easy in this culture where we're all trained to be on top. To climb to the top of the heap uh, over the bodies and shoulders and heads of others. So often we wrestle with envy or jealousy about others' accomplishments and mudita is the antidote to that envy. And then upeka, equanimity. The loving kindness is the wish that all beings without exception will be happy, will find happiness in their life. And this is, of course, a healthy happiness. It doesn't depend on the suffering of others. Karuna is the wish that all beings without exception will be free from suffering. Mudita is the rejoicing in the happiness and virtues of all beings without exception. It's joy in our own accomplishments and in those of others equally. And Upeka is learning to accept praise and blame, to accept loss and gain, to accept success and failure, all with detachment, with a healthy form of detachment, equally for everyone and for oneself. It's a tranquil, balanced state of mind that can't be knocked over or unbalanced by agitation or dullness, or anger, or delusion. So it's related to what I talked about last night, that when we have a sitting period that doesn't go the way we had hoped it was going to go, maybe we're sleepy, or maybe our mind state was dull or distracted, and we couldn't get it to focus the way we had hoped we would get it to focus. Then with equanimity, we accept this is the way it is, and we let it go. We renew our determination to practice as well as we can the next period. So it's a complete acceptance of things as they are. But a complete acceptance of things as they are doesn't mean we don't try to change things. A complete acceptance of things as they are is not resignation. It's basing our life on the truth instead of some delusion of how we wish things would be. So we say, oh, that period I was, I thought I was awake until the bell rang, and then I realized I was not awake. So this period I will adjust my posture, keep my eyes open, and do my best to be awake and focused. This phrase, without exception, the wish that all beings without exception will be happy, the wish that all beings without exception will be free from suffering. Rejoicing in the accomplishments and the virtues and the happiness of all beings without exception helps us to see the limitations of conventional relative loving-kindness and compassion. So we have conventional loving-kindness and compassion, and then we have ultimate loving-kindness and compassion. 
that, and the phrase "without exception" is a kind of turning, turning point, pivot point that helps us see how our practices of conventional loving kindness and compassion are limited. That's why we did the exercise last night and this morning. So if you would try this again, closing your eyes. Every person in the world, every person in the world deserves loving kindness. And we imagine them receiving loving kindness. Every person in my family deserves loving kindness. And we imagine them, each one, receiving loving kindness from us. And then I am a person who deserves loving kindness. Without exception in all situations, I am a person who deserves loving kindness. We feel it as the truth, as happening. So when we do this, we can see where the heart catches. So if you would close your eyes again, if they're open. Every criminal without exception, deserves loving kindness. And we imagine it so. Imagine them receiving loving kindness from us. Every murderer, everyone who has killed someone, deserves loving kindness. Even people who chop up their victims and eat them deserve loving kindness.
Every person in the world deserves loving-kindness. Every politician deserves loving-kindness. And we imagine it being so. Every terrorist deserves loving-kindness. Every terrorist who straps a bomb to the body of an unsuspecting child and sends them off and detonates it deserves loving-kindness. Every spider deserves loving-kindness. Every poisonous snake deserves loving-kindness. Every person who has wronged me, betrayed me, lied about me, insulted me, stolen from me, harmed me, in any way, deserves loving-kindness. We can see when we do exercises like that the limits of conventional compassion and loving-kindness. It's limited because its base is our ordinary mind and our ordinary heart, which have as their foundation I, me, and mine, and then you, the other, or they, the other. It's also limited by time, and it's limited by our experiences, and it's limited because it's pointed in various directions. Those of you who have done meta practice during the session before know that there are ways to that we cultivate relative compassion and loving kindness, and then we we gradually expand it so you can expand it in all directions, north, south, east, west, up and down, is a traditional way to expand the field of loving kindness. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful practice which we'll do. It's very important to practice relative loving-kindness and compassion. 
until we have a taste of awakened mind. Awakened mind is the basis of ultimate compassion, ultimate loving kindness, and ultimate joy beyond self and other, and ultimate equanimity in the face of constant and unpredictable change. So during this retreat, we'll be practicing both relative loving-kindness and compassion, and also later touching on awakened mind, hopefully through some guided exercises, and then touching on ultimate compassion and loving-kindness. Compassion and loving-kindness are very intimately linked. Loving-kindness without compassion, without a recognition of other people's suffering, and a heart's response to that is unanchored. So we all know, for example, that when we truly understand another person's suffering, or maybe hear for the first time another person's suffering, It changes how we feel about them. Our heart opens to them, and we automatically have a more kindly attitude, more benevolent attitude towards them. Before that, we might have been generally open-hearted towards them. But we've all had the experience of somebody that we didn't know very well or didn't even care for very much, And then we hear the story of their life and what they've gone through. And our heart opens in compassion. And then our whole way of being with them is much more benevolent. So compassion can trigger loving kindness. And loving kindness can be the the beginning of the unfolding of compassion once we know what another person's distress has been. I'll give you a current example. We got news yesterday that a Zen teacher in her 70s, Catherine Thanis, who's the abbot of the Santa Cruz Zen Center, a very lovely person, had a bad fall and a bad brain injury and is on life support in the intensive care unit in Santa Cruz. And they're keeping her on life support so that people can come and visit her. Her students and family can come and say goodbye. But they say she has a, a day or two to live. Probably the injury is that severe. So we hear a story like that, and automatically, even if you don't know the person, because this could happen to any of us any time, the heart opens. And we feel compassion for her, for her family, for her sangha. And if we were to meet one of them, we would meet them with an entirely different state of heart-mind, knowing that, that, that that's happened, compared to meeting them at a random meeting 
and not knowing what they're going through. So compassion and loving kindness. Compassion and a basic benevolent attitude are linked. And once we truly understand the extent of human suffering, the universality of human suffering, then that's the basis for well-founded metta, well-founded loving-kindness, all beings suffering as we do. So let's do an aspect now together of relative loving-kindness. If you would adjust your posture so you're comfortable. Actually, we'll do, we'll do compassion practice. So just having heard the story that I told of Catherine Thanis, the Zen teacher, falling and incurring a severe brain injury and being on life support in the hospital and her family and sangha gathering. So we can feel ourselves in that same situation observing the situation or participating in that situation because it could happen to any of us at any time or perhaps already has happened in our life. And we can feel our heart open to the people involved. And naturally a wish that their suffering be decreased arises. Naturally, a wish to embrace and comfort them arises. Even at this great distance. We feel how that natural compassion arises in us and where It changes us in our body. Perhaps our belly or our chest or our face or our hands. And how it changes our state of mind from indifference because we didn't know these people or this situation to an upwelling of natural, inherent compassion. And then we can extend this compassion to everyone around the world right now who is in the hospital on life support, 
given no chance for survival to their families, to their friends, the people who love them and gathered around them, hearing the news at a distance. We breathe in their grief and their sorrow and their suffering. And we breathe out loving kindness and compassion. And if the mind falters and gets distracted, we renew our inner awareness of all of the people all around the world who right now are sitting in hospitals with someone they care for, someone they love dearly, who's dying. And we breathe in our awareness of their sorrow, of their grief. And we breathe out loving kindness and compassion. May their sorrow be eased. Whatever our wish is for them, it doesn't have to take words. So this is a practice we can do any time we hear of some situation in the world that touches us. We can automatically do this practice. Stopping just for a moment to imagine the situation as vividly as we can. and then doing compassion practice for all who are involved in that particular situation, and then widening it 
to include all others in that same situation. So during this retreat, anytime someone floats into your mind that you're worried about, or any situation in the world that floats into your mind that you're anxious about, please use that as the focus for loving-kindness practice, compassion practice. Use that specific person or that specific incident. Use it to develop the opening of heart that comes from our awareness of these situations. Cultivate the feeling of compassion and loving-kindness. And then widen it to include all others in the same situation. Thank you.